never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a fantastic day for an interview because I've got Marie Giuliani with me. Mary is a woman who has gone through a massive transformation. I mean, how often do you meet people who drop 50% of their body weight? Yes, you heard that right, 50%. That's some serious doing. But that's not the only thing. That's only the start, really, about this woman, because she has transformed so much more. And there was, no, she was not climbing mountains and sit on the pinnacle in a lotus pose to get wisdom. No, she actually was willing, finally, to stop running from herself and finding out deep inside what is actually driving all the behaviors that so many of us used to escape our reality, let it be alcohol, drugs, sugar, food, sex, work, gambling, you name it. We have got all our special cocktail of things that let us just escape our reality. And uh, tomorrow will be damned. Who cares? Right now, uh, the pain is so bad. Give me that cheesecake. Now, this woman has done a transformation out of this world. And I'm so proud and privileged to have Mary on my show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Stefan. I'm so thrilled to be here. It is. Wow. I mean, your your story is amazing. But I mean, it takes a lot of work to get to a certain weight. You have to right. take action to actually right. get there. <laughs> I know. Right. I know. Because there was a time when I was dancing rock and roll, there are pictures of me dancing basically just in, 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 in just shorts, basically somewhere in Spain, right. uh, dancing rock and roll. And you could see every every rip and I was glistening Adonis kind of style. Yeah, needless, <laughs> needless to say, that is a few months ago. And uh, a lot of stresses and pain and shit that actually made me eat far too much. That's my story in a nutshell, and many readers already or listeners already know that. But what was your story? How were you as well, a little child? I mean, were right. you? Hmm? Well, yeah, well, so for me, I started using food to cope when I was about five, just when I was like five years old. And hmm. and the reason was uh, my parents, there's all this, I just noticed a lot of tension between my parents. They just didn't have like conflict resolution skills. And so um, my dad, he used food to cope. And so that that was like, you know, what I learned to do. And so, um, and as a child, you know, when your parents aren't happy, it's hard to be happy. It's like, you're, you're not happy unless your, your parents are, are happy. And so, and then when you watch your dad using food and, you know, so actually rewarding you with food, mm it sort of builds that connection that food is soothing when other things aren't available. And so, <clears throat> and so what happened was my mom was, you know, I'm sure she had unresolved trauma and, and she had a lot of anxiety and a lot of resentment toward my dad because he wouldn't talk out the problems. And eventually she started drinking alcoholically when I was about eight. But even before she started drinking, I think she was so caught up in her own anxiety and resentment toward my dad mm. that she just couldn't really be that soothing presence for me. And my dad wasn't really emotionally available. And so food became 
a substitute, really, a substitute relationship that was always there for me, that soothed me, that calmed me down, that uh, lifted me up. And um, so by the time I was about six, I already was getting bullied at school for being overweight. And so um, <clears throat> as as the the time period progressed in my family, my mom's drinking out really, really bad. And so she's, you know, raging at my dad on a regular basis, uh, keeping my sister and I up at night. And um, so, you know, it just, it, it was really the only thing that got me through. So by the time I was about 14, I was already about 225 pounds entering high school. And uh, I lost 80 pounds at one point going to some weight loss clinic, but then I was introduced to drugs and alcohol when I was 16 and had like a peak experience the first time I did them. It was like, oh my God, this is like the best feeling I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> I mean, where oh, have you yeah. been all my life? It oh, was yeah. just unbelievable. And so even though I knew I was at risk of being an alcoholic because of my mom, it provided such relief and such uh, it and in connection with my friends and it was so, it was finally, I was having fun. And so that brought me into a whole decade of drinking and smoking pot every day and cigarettes and, and food. And so um, <clears throat> by the time I was 27, I'd finally had enough and got sober with AA and then did OA and lost about 140 pounds in OA. Hmm. But that wasn't the end of my eating problem. Uh, Eventually, I went through relationship difficulties, uh, and I actually had a relapse with my alcohol and food issues about 12 years after my initial sobriety, because it was the end of a, a long-term relationship, which I considered my only family, and um, and it, the pain was so over, overwhelming, I just ended up relapsing. So I ended up gaining all that weight back, and I was over 300 pounds again. and. Um, <clears throat> so the 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 bottom line was I had to, and, and I'd already been on this recovery path for like, at that point, you know, 15 years or so. I had to come to the realization that for whatever reason, I had lost and gained hundreds of pounds several times throughout my life. And I needed to do something different. And so I ended up opting in for weight loss surgery. And so I ended up going through gastric bypass when I was uh, 42. And, you know, sometimes people will think, oh, well, you had weight loss surgery. That's why you lost your weight and kept it off. Well, the truth is, is that, first of all, it was a harm reduction approach, really. It was basically to save me from killing myself with food because I could not seem to get it under control for more than a few months. But um, basically, the fact that I had a lot of recovery, at least understand uh, having I, I had a cognitive awareness that I was using food to cope but I still hadn't learned that underneath it was complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So the point is though, as I, with the weight loss surgery, I was able to not only lose 160 pounds, but I've been able to maintain that weight loss for 20 years. And I, I use a, um, I have a food plan. I have an exercise plan. I, I've learned to look to healthier ways to cope in relationships and with on my own self-compassion, inner parenting, that sort of thing. <clears throat> so the thing is, is whether you choose uh, a traditional weight loss program or weight loss surgery or whatever you do, once you lose the weight, 
you're going to have to deal with whatever's driving the food issue in the first place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I was 57 years old after I read, and again, I was on this recovery path for all these years, that I read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which is all about the brain, mind, and body and healing trauma, and realized that my brain had been changed by the toxic stress of growing up in my family. And the reason I didn't know this sooner is because I bought into the idea that I had to have had physical or sexual abuse to be considered a trauma survivor. And yet here I am reading page after page in this book saying, no, you know, you can, you can experience trauma from what I went through. And it just made sense for the first time. It's like, well, you know, the, like I had part of what happens with childhood trauma is your brain changes to where the frontal part of your brain underdevelops because, and that's the part of the brain that has impulse control, um, emotional regulation, focus. The reason it does that is because the back part of the brain, the survival brain for fight, flight, and freeze overdevelops because it has to, to cope with the environment. So it made sense why I had impulse control issues. It made sense why I had emotional reactivity issues. I, it was like my hat, I literally, instead of it being a, it was like a, a an injury to my, my brain and my body and mind. And so once I learned this, it was like, oh my God, it was never my fault. It, you know, it, I was exposed to an environment that I had no control over. And I was never told what was really underneath it. And so it was such a huge epiphany and relief. Because I mean, even though in 12 step and OA and you know, the, there is the 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 saying of, well, you know, your disease is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to manage it. But it still didn't relieve me of the shame of feeling like I was weak a failure, and therefore just undeserving of the kind of love that I really wanted. And so um, learning that, you know, these struggles were never my fault to begin with, and that I could heal and find sustainable relief was a major breakthrough for me. And so, uh, yeah, I had already been maintaining my weight before I learned I had trauma, but I was still struggling with caffeine, with sleep, with relationships, um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it was such a pivotal moment for me. That's what inspired me to write my book. It's not about food, drugs, or alcohol. It's about healing complex PTSD. Absolutely. Come on, show it, show it. It's time oh, to okay. show it. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, Mary yeah, has, there we go. that's it. Uh, it's beautiful. There it is. Uh, it's about yeah. healing complex PTSD. And that yeah. is such an important, important message there. Um, and I I love it that you had this epiphany of, of, my God, you don't have to see your best friend blown up on a battlefield in order nope. to qualify somehow for PTSD. No. Complex PTSD. How would you define it? How would you explain it to a friend? PTSD is deemed a more severe form of PTSD in that it happens over the course. It can happen in adulthood, but typically it happens in the course of being raised in a dysfunctional or abusive childhood home. And the reason why it's more severe is because, first of all, your, your brain is still developing. And so it's being changed by the toxic stress of the trauma. So that's one piece of it. The other piece 
is that, uh, and that's why you have emotional regulation issues, meaning that you have a difficult time calming yourself down, which means that you're going to want to use food and drugs and alcohol mm. because you're so miserable and, and anxious or depressed. And um, the other piece is that it happens in the context of close relationships. And so what happens with it is that as you grow up, when you get into close relationships, there's a trauma trigger that happens where you literally have a visceral response to feeling uh, dysregulated or just not, not in a, a space of well-being. And so like for me, it showed up as not being able to maintain long-term friendships. And, and even though I loved friends um, or even my, my romantic relationships, I, I had several long-term romantic relationships, but I didn't know until I learned about complex PTSD that the reason my relationships would break up is because we were both triggering each other's trauma, but we didn't even know it because we didn't think we had drama. We had no idea. Exactly. So instead of, so in my case, for example, um, since I witnessed so much conflict between my parents for so many years, whenever conflict would come up in my relationship, I would go into a trauma response and be reactive thinking that it was the relationship when it was really my own trauma reenacting itself in my body, brain, and mind. And so that's the other piece about uh, complex PTSD or PTSD really, is that it's not just the event and the memories, disturbing memories of the period of time. It's how it lives. It actually, you actually relive the sensations in your body and mind when you get triggered. And when, like, for example, in my case, um, when a new person comes into my life, uh, if there's a potential for a close relationship, I notice now, and I know what it is, I start thinking, oh, well, are they emotionally healthy? You know, are they going to drain me? Are they going to shame me? Are they going to, you know, and, and why? Because that's what my mom did, you know? Um, but now I understand it and I understand that, okay, I can talk myself, I can soothe myself and, and regulate myself and go, Mary, this is a trauma response and you're not a little girl. You have the ability to, you know, be, uh, you know, uh, picky or, or just, you know, uh, discerning about who you hang out with and you can set boundaries or you can choose not to be friends with somebody. But the point is, is, and even in my romantic relationship, um, when I sense any sense of distance between my partner and I, I know now that a big part of that is the the terror of being emotionally abandoned for so many years as a child. So before I learned about complex PTSD, that would cause a lot of issues in my relationship because I was reacting from that place. But now my partner understands about complex PTSD and, and, and she under, you know, we, we talk about it and I own my trigger stuff. Um, and I've done a lot of healing on healing. The thing about complex PTSD is it can, it's treatable and you can heal. And so relationship struggles are one symptom of it. it um, this is the thing about complex PTSD is it's a set of symptoms. It's not like, oh, I have, you know, it's not like I have asthma or something. It's, um, it's a set of symptoms. And so the symptoms typically are uh, difficulty with close relationships, whether it's friendships or um, romantic relationships or even work relationships. It's difficulty regulating emotions. 
um, whether it's depression, anxiety, rage, it's um, difficulty uh, with sometimes with attention because the frontal lobe does not develop properly because of the trauma. So a lot of people have attention deficit disorders. Um, it, and again, it doesn't mean everybody with these issues has complex PTSD, but these are symptoms. Also, um, using drugs, alcohol, food, or other behavioral uh, addictions to regulate the nervous system. And that's why on the back of my book, I, I state at the very top, your struggle with food, drugs, and alcohol is not your fault. It's a normal response mm. to being to surviving an abnormal family. Mm. And I mean, the first time I heard that, I was blown away. It was like, it's a normal response. Oh my God. Not to say you should just go out and drink and, you know, you know, eat yourself to death, but just knowing that it was normal that my my body, nervous system, and mind responded like any organism would when it's exposed to that kind of toxic stress. Mm. And the my apologies. And I love it how you said that uh, these are symptoms and you don't need to score the full house. So certainly right. when you sort of uh, raise these symptoms, I certainly had three out of four and 100% uh, could identify with that. I didn't have ADHD, but I certainly used uh, used disability to focus to actually escape reality. I became a workaholic long oh, yeah. before I became a alcoholic or a foodaholic mm -hmm. or a sexaholic. So mm -hmm. right. it is, we use all kinds of behaviors um, that often are to our detriment. Um, sometimes certain behavior or certain traits can be very positive. For example, mm -hmm. if you escape into your schoolwork um, or then later into your work work, well, that's quite nice. You actually probably become successful. You probably become, um, at least on the outside, you become um, someone who does say, wow, cool. Yeah. Inside, however, you are immediately sabotaging all those mm -hmm. things that that you have right. gained. Did that happen to you as well? Yeah, actually, once I got sober and uh, in my early 30s, I started my own business and it got right into workaholism. <laughs> and uh, even though I you know, made a lot of money and did a lot of work helping people grow businesses and that sort of thing, became a life coach. Um, I was still struggling again with my relationships, with my 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 weight would go up and down. This before I had my surgery, um, you know, anywhere from twenty to seventy pounds. Um, and the other piece that's really common for survivors is shame. Um, you know, the thing about trauma is that if you don't understand where it comes from, if you don't understand why you struggle with all of these things, it's hard not to believe there's that you're just broken or you're weak or you're unlovable. And, and so shame is one of the most painful emotions there is. And that's a big piece of the healing. And so just learning that these issues weren't your fault is, I mean, 50%, I, I mean, I would almost say it's about 50% of the healing, just the awareness and learning to have compassion for yourself instead of, uh, you know, the inner critic letting that run wild. Um, the other thing is, the other really important thing is to heal your relationship issues. So re the relational trauma piece. Um, typically, if we haven't 
healed our complex PTSD, we tend to hang out in relationships that remind us of how we grew up, you know? And, um, and so we, it's, we repeat the same types of uh, patterns. Mm. So, you know, learning about relational trauma, I, I did a lot of work in Codependence Anonymous when I was in my late, when I, after I got sober, but I didn't, here's another thing. I didn't understand that one of, you know, there's the fight, flight, freeze trauma response, but there's also the fawn trauma response, which is codependency. In other words, when we're growing up in a crazy family, a child will do anything to protect that attachment relationship because it's life or death. So if that means, you know, putting their own needs aside, like in my case, I, I, I became a coach at 35, but my coaching practice started when I was 10 years old with my mother. <laughs> you know, Ooh, nicely said. Uh, yeah, so I mean, literally, I, I, I would see her personal growth books hang around the house and I would secretly read them. And then I had one day I had this brilliant idea. Oh, my God, if I it was Wayne Dyer's Your Erroneous Zones, this is like 1970s. Um, if I could like take this wisdom from this book and, and share it with my mom, maybe she'd get better, you know? And so I would literally, you know, go through the book and say, hey, mom, um, you know, Dyer says that if you use I statements instead of, you know, you statements with dad, he might be more open to talking with you. And, and she'd be like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, and so I literally would like dog ear the pages, highlight everything for the next lesson and go through these books with her. So yeah, I was, I became her parent and coach. And, and that's enough. And so instead of my developmental needs getting met, I was there for her because that's, you really don't have a choice as a child. You, you need to do that and you lose a sense of self. And so if we don't heal that, when we get into relationships, so what happened for me as I as I became an adult is I would pick partners, and there I was with that personal growth book, trying to read it to them, <laughs> trying to. It's like instead of reading books for myself, I would literally read books, thinking, "Oh, this she needs this, she needs this," and asking her if I could read it to her. And I'm like, Mary, you're doing exactly what you did with your mother, you know. So trying to find people to fix because that was my natural role, and. The healing for me was recognizing, first of all, it's pretty arrogant to think I have the magic solution for somebody. And also, and as I learned in Codependence Anonymous, they have a higher power and I'm not it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and nice. so, but the, the painful part of it is recognizing, you know what, this person might never get better, might never change, might never want to. And I might have to face the grief of letting them go, you know, and um, that's, that's pretty painful when you have unresolved relational trauma. And so I did a lot of work in codependent stuff. And, um, and I, I write up all about this in my book, too, about attachment theory and, and about attachment trauma. And, um, and really what it came down to what I really got is that the food, the drugs, the alcohol, were all an attempt to get the soothing that my mom and dad couldn't give me. They just, and it wasn't, they were bad people. They were just, you know, they were parented the same way that they were trying to parent me. And so, um, but that was the best attempt that I could, could use. And so the, the healing, a big part of the healing is not only doing brain and body types of therapies, but also learning how to co-regulate with people, which 
it's kind of terrifying when you haven't done it before, especially if, you know, your primary relationship has been with food or drugs or alcohol or work or whatever. <laughs> I love it. I've never looked at it uh, from that angle. Your primary relationship is with your addiction. I love it. Yeah. I love it the way you so, phrase that. Well, that's why, like, when you're in a relationship with someone that's addicted, hmm. it, they're having an affair. It's not with a person, but it's with their their whatever drug of choice is, because they're not connecting with you, you know. And um, yeah, yeah. Love it, love it, love it. But I mean, these are these are damn hard insights, and they don't just creep up on you. It is interesting to hear you explaining your own journey that was mixed. How shall I say that? You, you have gone through so many attempts to become the best version of yourselves. Yes. I mean, I bloody hell take my hat off to you well, just for you. going through that journey. What? How? And, and I love it. I mean, you answered that question. I was about to ask you what, what, why did it not? hold why did it not set um you you say it it's the the only the realization down the line that some of the core beliefs that were running in the background of your head were so mm -hmm. screwed up and that is what is so hard to accept do you right. still do you still see yourself as a failure is there still that oh voice no not at all no i mean now i really the biggest gift i think one of the biggest gifts of, of the trauma healing journey is uh, is self-compassion. It's yeah. like, oh, sweetie, you did the best you could. And just really, that's a big, big, big piece. Um, yeah. And self-forgiveness. Um, you know, I was raised uh, another, <laughs> I was raised Catholic. And so, <laughs> and so there was a whole other, you know, guilt and shame and, and stuff like that too, that, that I had to learn how to, how to heal. Um, so this journey really is about recognizing that as a human being, as human beings, we're organisms, just like plants. And if a plant doesn't get the, the right soil, water, sunlight, and care, it's either not going to grow or it's going to get sick or die early. And the same nice. thing goes for the human organism. And so, nice. you know, yeah, it's uh, we were injured by the emotional or physical or sexual or whatever abuse growing up. Our brain was injured our worldview, our, you know, our thoughts about ourselves. And, but the good news is you can heal. And if you get to the core issue, so yes, you, you need to learn how to uh, connect with relationships, but there's also the nervous system healing that doesn't just happen from relationships. Like I did, uh, there's several types of body and brain types of therapies that I learned I needed to engage in because at one point in that book, The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk states, no amount of talk therapy can completely heal trauma. And of course, I was like, oh, did he really just say that? I was listening to it on Audible. I'm like, I've got to, I've got to rewind this. And it's like, oh, my God, he did just say that. And like, that's the only kind of, you know, I did 12 step. I did, you know, uh, therapy. I did personal growth books, but I had never done body because then he goes on to say, you need to heal the visceral, you basically you're, <clears throat> excuse me, you need to have a visceral experience that contradicts the, the one that the trauma created. So, um, yeah. And so to do that, you, you have to, um, you have to engage in 
body-based therapies because the trauma lives in the sensations in your body and and the way that you uh, you know interact with people. And so I did. Um, he recommends a ton of different things, but some of the things I did, just yoga, for example, is one thing because it helps you get into your body. It helps you get into your breath. <clears throat> Excuse me. I also did neurofeedback, which is, um, it's a form of biofeedback that works on retuning the frequencies of your brain to a more optimal set point. Um, the thing with trauma survivors is typically the brain resets to what's known as being hyper aroused, which is too high, too fast, anxious, agitated, angry, or sometimes it can go the opposite, which is hypoarousal, which is spacey, depressed, lethargic, and sometimes it can fluctuate. I tended to go into the hypoarousal uh, mode. So it's like almost like having a thermostat that's broken. Mm. And, um, mm. and so the neurofeedback, it, it, what it does is it trains your brain to reset to a more optimal settings so that you can be more regulated. And that was really helpful for me with my sleep, with, um, with my social engagement stuff, hmm. um, with, um, you know, other just compulsive behaviors that weren't healthy for me. Hmm. And so, you know, it was, uh, and, and just seeing those changes was like, oh my God, my brain really has been driving a lot of this too. So you do have to, to hit it from the brain, the body and the mind. Hmm. Um, and uh, and the good news is that, like I said, you can heal. It's uh, it's a process, and I think the biggest step is to understand it hmm. and to make sure you connect with trauma informed practitioners. In other words, people that really understand what complex trauma is, so that they don't re-traumatize you. Exactly. Uh, or and you know, so yeah. Uh, it's beautiful what you have just explained there. And indeed, the, the issues lie in the tissues, like it or mm -hmm. like it. And therefore, it is so important that we that we use our body to start healing. And that is happening again and again and again. I've had so many beautiful guests on my show who, like you, have gone through through various trials and tribulations in turn trauma that got themselves really stuck inside mm -hmm. them and they could not shift mm -hmm. it and then suddenly they found a modality of trauma focused yoga of sorts mm -hmm. and suddenly a yes. uh, 50 year old man um or oh, man's man uh suddenly break down <laughs> crying after half an hour of yoga and you think what the fuck how yeah. the hell? And it's yeah. exactly that. It's exactly yes. that. And therefore, this is so yeah. powerful. When and that's I love it that you say a trauma uh, um, focused practitioner or informed practitioner, right. uh, because it's so easy to then say, oh, well, "What do I do now?" Um, for this practitioner, so right. you know, it is uh, it's it's a challenge if they don't know what is suddenly happening. They think, huh. Well, yeah, it, it, like like I said, all the therapists I went to never even mentioned the word trauma. And so, yeah, going to like EMDR is another type of eye, eye movement desensitization therapy. It's a it's a bilateral stimulation. I haven't tried that, but a lot of 
people that I know in the trauma community have, have done really well with really calming down some of the memories that be, that are major triggers for them. Um, also, just somatic mindfulness. And basically, it's very simple. It's just being mindful of the sensations in your body. You know, um, I didn't realize how disembodied I was until I learned about this. And, um, and noticing, just noticing when you're in an environment that you feel like all of a sudden you'll meet somebody and you're, and you just don't feel safe and you know, noticing that and taking care of yourself around it. Um, you know, learning boundaries, setting standards. Um, there's so many different things. And, um, but the main thing is recognizing that you're not broken or bad. Your, you, your body and mind responded in a, a normal way that anybody would under those circumstances. Mm. Um, and, and the tragedy of all of this is that, you know, hardly anybody knows or understands complex PTSD. And so I write about in my book, The 12 Reasons Why People Either Don't Recognize Their Own or Others' Trauma. And um, I think a, one of the biggest ones is uh, not recognize, thinking that you have to have some really horrific or sexual or, or physical abuse. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a concept called or emotional neglect, which is basically when a parent doesn't recognize or validate your emotions or mirror those back to you as a child. So you could grow up in a family where there was no addiction, no mental health issues, no violence or anything. Like I heard that actually, you know, Robin Williams, the wonderful comedian that we lost a few years ago, that was his trauma. He, you know, he had parents that were very successful. He was raised by nannies, but he was an only child and didn't get a lot of attunement from his parents. And so when you're a child, you need that face-to-face, -face empathic, compassionate connection, you know, and when you don't get it, you can't help but feel like, well, first of all, you don't, you don't learn how to identify your feelings uh, and you can feel like, you know, there's that you're dead inside or there's something wrong with you. And that's one of the most tragic invisible traumas because when there's, there's, it's like, it's not about what happened. It's what, uh, it's about what needed to happen, but didn't. And so um, that's another uh, thing that I think a lot of people are unaware of. Um, so, yeah. And you cannot underestimate the power of these core beliefs that are being installed into our subconscious and it's those core beliefs that will ride you like a like crazy and it still amazes me there are certain programs that are still going on in my subconscious mm -hmm. and i really i know that they are there but i mm -hmm. really need, need to monitor them i need to manage mm -hmm. them um, mm -hmm. It does not matter what I achieve in my life. I will always mm -hmm. consider myself a failure. There will mm -hmm. always be shame and guilt mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. things. Even if I today do very well, suddenly I remember something that happened 40 years ago or 30 right. years ago when I behaved like an idiot. And that comes up in order to prove to me what a bad person I am, what a, what right. a, what shame and guilt I should feel. And right. it comes like a visceral reaction, yes. literally yes. like someone punching you in the gut 
and my kids for a long time when they grew up and I was driving them and suddenly went, oh. and it's if someone punched me in the gut and they said, are you okay? And uh, I wow. explained to them, hey, this is this is me just having a flashback of some stupid crap. Um, yeah. And they very quickly then said, oh, oh, what was it? What was it? Knowing oh that God. it was sort of an awful kind of thing. Oh, my God. And sometimes I, I, I shared the lessons that I learned from those moments. But it still amazes me the, the yes. power of this visceral reaction that literally the pain in my gut. Absolutely. And is it then maybe, just maybe, if you think about that I had this gut reaction um, that if I now tell you that your brain has about one and a half kilogram of nervous tissue, if I now tell you that your gut has equally about one and a half kilogram of nervous tissue, do mm -hmm. you think that there might be a little link there? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, God. So, and very soon you realize, okay, there is maybe there are programs running in, in the background here that are not very productive for you, but mm -hmm. you had no, no say in them. They were installed by something that happened to you many, many, many moons ago. Uh, you right. Didn't well, realize it. Well, I mean, even like our, some of the stuff I learned that was mind blowing for me about, uh, the way a infant's nervous system and emotional regulation develops is like a template from the mother, mm. literally. So my mother was all anxious and, you know, dysregulated all the time. And so that's the template that I got. And she had a lot of shame. Mm. And so, you know, she would shame me. And then, of course, being raised Catholic, the whole crux of the Catholic religion is that you're born with original sin, which means that you're morally corrupt. <laughs> and <Yay>. so, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I went, I went, I went through 12 years of Catholic school and then learned I was a lesbian when I was 14 <laughs> in Catholic high school. Right. So, you know, that whole shame thing. And um, so healing shame is a big part of uh, trauma and um, and just healing from feeling uh, like I was bullied as a child, as an overweight kid, that feeling of being undesirable and ugly. And, and even though I've lost my weight, there's still a part of me that can get triggered around that. And um, yeah, so it, Interesting. What, what, actually one of the things that I, I'm interested in doing some EMDR therapy is on that. And also on... Um, because what the EMDR therapy does is it, it helps you recall a situation that was very traumatizing for you. And it helps you reprocess and integrate that memory in a regulated way. So it, like Bessel van der Kolk says, you need to uh, have a visceral experience that's different than the existing one in your body and mind. So that, and also... One of the other big triggers for me is anytime I notice my partner being distant and I have the fear of her leaving me. And um, it's a visceral feeling. It's really hard. And I know that it's a trauma trigger. And so, um, and that could go back as far as just being an infant, having a dysregulated mother not being able to attune with me, you know? Um, so those are a couple of things I'm, I'm still looking at working on. And, um, so yeah, it's a journey. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest things today 
is I just give myself a lot of space to not be perfect. Um, I, I recognize that, you know, I went through what I went through. Um, and trauma is treatable. It's not to say that you'll, I don't really, some people have this sort of salvation fantasy that, okay, if I, if I get exactly all these right treatments, I'll be perfect. And it'll be as if I never had trauma in my life, you know? And, and the reality is, is that everybody had different experiences, different degrees. And, you know, some people are going to experience more healing than others. Um, I'm just grateful that I'm not, you know, 300 pounds drinking myself to death. <laughs> do I still eat when I'm not hungry? Yeah, I do. And I figured out a way to do it without gaining weight. I'm not worried about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yes, I do. I do my best to get soothing in healthier ways, but I'm not perfect. And I think just having that sense of compassion and forgiveness for myself is a big part of it, not shaming myself. Mm. So um, learning how to be that kind, compassionate parent that I didn't get, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. But I love it, what you're saying, that this is an ongoing journey and that we are not suddenly are cured somehow of everything. And that from now on, just they're going to be little little i don't know angels flying and they, every time they fart <laughs> they're going to be a rainbow no it doesn't work like that trauma yeah. will continue this is a shit world um and inevitably things will go wrong again but i guess the key thing is that as a survivor you still sort of be thrown with the, uh, you, you, you don't even duck with the punches. You just get pummeled. Um, as a thriver, once you move from the victim to the survivor to the thriver, you actually realize that there is a, an, a big element of choice there. There's an element for you Absolutely. to choose how you respond to the new traumas that inevitably will come to the new things you you begin to question the the responses that and the, uh -huh. the perceptions in your own mind so uh -huh. it is so common that i fly still into a rage or want to fly in a rage i hear uh -huh. something Arr! meanwhile i've learned to stop for a moment and uh -huh. assess do I actually get the facts right? <laughs> what? So I, I first of all ask, hey, what are the real facts behind it before I rip someone mm -hmm. a new hole? And the, more often than not, I have to say, well, okay, that is no one's fault here, and that's absolutely fine. Which means basically, for for that to happen, several things had have to have occurred. A I need to recognize that this trigger is there. Then I need to recognize uh -huh. that there is a certain emotion washing over me, which in uh -huh. the past was like a tidal wave. And uh -huh. it still can be for a fraction of a second there. I still uh -huh. want to go. Arr! And then I that there is this element of choice. So three things are happening. Uh, uh -huh. And the more you practice, the quicker uh -huh. that will happen. Initially, you still fly off the handle and then you think, actually, now let's ask the question. And then you say, oh, shit. Okay, I'm sorry for what I said. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it, you're getting better and better and better with it, the more you practice Absol it. Absolutely. And I think I really that's the definition of, of using mindfulness, you know, just, first of all, having awareness that that's a trigger versus yeah. just not even knowing. Yeah. And then, then just saying, wait a minute, let me stop, look, listen. Yeah. 
what's true about this yeah and um yeah so, so uh, but you still do you still feel these waves of emotions of of neurochemicals washing over you oh absolutely mm -hmm. uh so for me my triggers a lot of the triggers are just being around people fighting having you know because ah. that's what i sure you know experienced growing up um and then just the any hint of abandonment with my partner is a big trigger um mm. but i know it now so and and i and we've talked about what's cool about this is uh there's the attachment I, i'm assuming like the whole attachment theory you have secure attachment insecure attachment which is either anxious or avoidant anyway my partner and I are aware of our attachment styles and we are aware of what we need to uh, do to make each other feel safe in the relationship. And so with my partner, she understands that when I sense any kind of distance from her, it's okay for me to say, honey, are we okay? You know, and she's not going to shame me and say, you're so insecure or whatever, like previous ones did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she, you know, she'll tell me the truth or if there is something up, you know, she'll say, well, yeah, there's something up. Do you want to talk about it? Or if I'm not ready to talk about it, we'll set a time to do so. And for her, she knows what, what I know she needs to feel safe is that if she needs to take space, that I won't get angry with her and uh, I won't abandon her because she needs to take space. Nice. So, you know, just learning how to navigate each other's uh, attachment styles are really important. Um, and uh, the other thing is just recognizing my limitations. Um, you know, they call it uh, post-traumatic stress disorder for a reason. It's a stress-related disorder. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I have limitations around how much stress I can take on in my life because stress is already a known factor for relapse with alcohol, drugs, mm -hmm. food. And so I make, I'm very mindful when I make personal and professional choices about the stress level that it could put me under because, you know, there's nothing worse. It's not worth losing my sobriety over. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And so I, you know, I, and also my relationship choices. Oh my God. To me, the relationships that you're in are one of the most significant factors in how well you're going to fare emotionally, professionally, uh, on a connection, intimacy level. And so, you know, having the ability to include or not include certain people is important. And because we have to recognize we're not responsible for other people feeling hurt or whatever. Yeah. The other thing, let's be quite honest. Um, it is, we are, it has always been the, the onus we put on ourselves. Um, if, something happens we are that the pendulum swings this way and you think oh everything whatever happens i need to be in control i need to be uh able to to respond in a certain way therefore the other person is fine and our relationship will be good please remember one in ten people have got a, a personality disorder so if oh. they come into your life, they are I didn't realize one, it was that high. Wow. One in 10. One in 10 have personality disorders. One in 100 are psychopaths, sociopaths. Um, so these are actually high numbers. So inevitably, there will be people who you meet who are just poison for you. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and you need to sometimes distance yourself and you need to sometimes recognize now yes you want to make this relationship work maybe it's at work or maybe it is in in a in a social environment and you might just have to ditch the bitch um <laughs> no no two ways around that i've i've had a few examples like that in my life where with hindsight i have to say wow why did i wait so long to right. to decide decide actually comes from latin to cut off um oh, so okay. there you go i should have cut off that relationship far far earlier and right. guess what suddenly half of the trauma in my life are disappearing oh, right. surprise surprise okay so there you go guys so just it's not always you i think i mm -hmm. want to say that out there so we were talking about shame and guilt but there's still this kind of oh i need to make it work no you don't Okay, mm -hmm. it is give it a really good shot. Be open about your own emotions, about your feelings. If the other person doesn't buy into that and says you're a wimp, you're oh come on, mm -hmm. you're weakling. Well, that's your answer. Okay, um, mm -hmm. don't let yourself be treated like a like a punching bag. Um, right, not verbally and certainly not really uh, in in real life. There is so much, as I said, there are nasty pieces of work out there, the narcissists, um, those kind of people. And you all have met them. Sometimes they come in disguises. And I think that is mm -hmm. so important. Oh, well, wow. yeah. And I, and I talk a lot about in my book, I actually, the book is not just a memoir, but also a science-based research about complex PTSD addiction and also, and relationship recovery, but also a workbook on a complex PTSD workbook, and and that includes uh, quizzes, questionnaires, and worksheets on relational recovery. Mm -hmm. So how to identify if you you know if the relationships that you're in are meeting your needs, and what to do about it. And um, you know basically there's four things you need, and this is and this is a, by a psychologist that I I really resonated with. You need to be in a relationship where the person is. Ill somewhat equally invested in the relationship. <laughs> Number two, you need to be able to connect on a regular basis, like at least weekly, over the phone or in person, interactive, not just texting. Um, you need to feel a positive experience, more positive than negative experience of the relationship. And you both need to be vulnerable and share vulnerability in the relationship. And if you don't have you know, at least three out of those four things, you're probably not going to be that satisfied. And so just rec just kind of having an assessment of that and what you can do to change it, um, I think can be really helpful. And also there's worksheets on how to heal your trauma and uh, how to get into recovery. I, I basically lay out every step I've taken to uh, get sober, keep my weight off for 20 years, um, be in healthy relationships. So, you know, I just wanted to provide a map and a guide. So Beautiful. Beautiful. Because you have been in the darkness and now mm -hmm. you want, you not want, you are in the light and you appreciate the light for what it is, a gift, a privilege, a choice. And mm -hmm. that is so beautiful. All of us survivors and, and post post-traumatic thrivers or growers, mm -hmm. yes. we all yeah. are in this appreciation. We all appreciate every single second that we have got in our life. Absolutely. With a new, with a new vigor. And that is so refreshing. That is that to all of us, we are living intentionally and we are making mm -hmm. choices 
Sometimes we still make wrong choices. That's cool. But we make a choice. And more often than not, the choice is leading us towards a new, better version of us. And that is right. so beautiful. I mean, Mary, yes. wow. I mean, look at you. You have transformed so much. You have gained so much wisdom. You grew so much into this new person. I can't wait to to see who you want to be when you grow up. Um, I mean, <laughs> we are all changing. It doesn't matter if you're 17 yes. or 70. Um, right. This is your choice. This is your chance. Right now, we hopefully have shown you that, honestly, if the two of us can get our shit together, come on, yes. you've got a fair chance yeah. out there. Exactly. Clear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, well, beautiful. I mean, it wasn't until I learned I had trauma and had all these breakthroughs that I really came into my calling of, because I always struggled with, you know, what is it that I really want to do with my coaching and with yeah. my personal development work? And it, and it wasn't until I understood the the profound, uh, you know, issues around trauma and why I struggled that I realized, oh my God, this is my life's calling. And, um, and now I have a way to do it and um, help other people heal and recover and, and have wonderful relationships and, and, you know, have a healthy weight and, mm. you know, get sober or, or whatever issues they're dealing with. So, yeah. you know, there, there is a solution and um, we're here. Beautiful. Beautiful. Show us once more your book. Okay. <laughs> because it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I can't wait to read it. It's coming out in four days time for me. It's yes. not about food, drugs or alcohol. It's about healing. About healing complex PTSD. PTSD. And that's exactly, yes. that's the nutshell of it. And it's, it's um, going to be on Amazon. Yeah. With e either ebook or paperback. Fantastic. And, uh, and should, people, I, should I share my oh sorry go ahead I was about to say tell us if people gel with you and want to learn more with regards to sure. where they can find you where shall they go sure it's uh what my website's Mary Giuliani that's g-i-u-l-i-a-n-i dot net and uh, I have all kinds of stuff on on there I've got uh I've got the uh my a blog a newsletter uh all kinds of information about addiction recovery, food and relationship recovery. I even have, I used to sing and, and write songs about recovery and transformation. So I've even got my uh, my album of original songs on there too. Oh, excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. A talk you can about. get it on Spotify and yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, Mary. Yeah. Oh, you're a woman of many talents. I love yeah. it. Oh, excellent. Oh, guys, come on. It is, uh, there is so much waiting for you out there. You have already taken the first step, guys. The sheer fact that you're still listening to this interview, that means you are ready to change and you have already taken action. How cool is that? So now that you switched that, that, uh, that our, our interview off, go down there, press the like and subscribe button. Check down there all the links of Mary because, you know, why not? What could stop you? And then think, okay, what's next? Maybe have a big glass of water, rehydrate. Maybe think of some yummy food. What's the next thing you eat? Maybe you choose maybe one or two more sleeves of salad and spinach in there than rather the, the muffin or the, the kind of thing. And if you don't know what is the right food, maybe that might be the first step that you learn something. But may I suggest, don't start reinventing the wheel, okay? There are people out there who are on the same path as you want to be. So find your tribe. 
and surround yourself. Find your power team. And that is defined by you being the dumbest person in that team. Okay, so that means a coach, that means maybe a psychologist, that must be maybe, you know, other people out there who are further down the line. And once you start surrounding yourself with these people and you see examples, how every day they make choices that might suit you better than the choices maybe that you have done in the past. Hmm. Can you imagine that your life will change? Educated guess, shit, yeah. So therefore, Mary, thank you so much for doing what you're Welcome. doing. You're giving hope. You're, you're showing people, you're hopefully the candle, the torch, the, the lighthouse in the darkness for others. And that is so beautiful to meet people like you. So thank you so much for coming on you're to welcome. my show. That was amazing. It was amazing. Thank you so much <laughs> for all your work and helping so many people, you know, heal, recover and thrive. So yay. Exactly. And you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.